Good afternoon. My name is Kamika, and I will be your conference operator today. Welcome to Cozen O'Connor Public Strategy Series about the latest developments in politics and policy in D.C. Our call today will be moderated by Blake Rutherford, a member of Cozen O'Connor. Our speakers are Howard Schweitzer, Managing Partner, and Mark Alderman, Chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and special guest, former two-term Senator and Governor of Indiana, Evan Bayh, who recently joined the firm. This recording will be available after the call at copublicstrategies.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching for Cozen O'Connor. Thank you, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. It's, it's an exciting time in, in American public life. It's also an exciting time in Cozen O'Connor's life. I am Blake Rutherford. I'm joined, as always, by Mark Alderman, the chairman of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and Howard Schweitzer, the managing partner of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, and a new member of Cozen O'Connor. Uh, as our, as uh, the introduction identified, we are so privileged, honored, and, and overjoyed to have uh, former Governor and Senator Evan Bayh join the firm and join us on this call today, which, uh, Mark and Howard, you have a lot to live up to um, as we as we begin our as we begin our discussions. But uh, Senator, that's how how I will refer to you on this call. Welcome to Cozen O'Connor. Welcome to the Beltway Briefing, and welcome to the circus that never ends. We're privileged to have you, uh, Blake. It's my honor. I'm thrilled to be a part of the Cozen O'Connor team. And if there's anything I can do to help our colleagues who will be listening or some of our clients or prospective clients, I'm happy to do whatever I can to help them meet the challenges that they face. Just one minor thing, uh, I'm happy to answer to Senator, but with Congress's current job approval rating at about 15 percent, uh, maybe, maybe governor sounds a little better. Yeah, sure, sure. It's, it's, you, 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 you've earned the right to, to declare your uh, – how you'd like to be named. So, so for the purposes uh, I, of this call, we'll, I was just, just we'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Um, well, actually, if, if, uh, because I know that so many people are curious about things that they're not as familiar with, and you played a huge role last week um, in the introduction of President Trump's nominee, uh, for director of the CIA, Gina Haspel. Um, it's not something that necessarily comes into contact with people's everyday lives, but as we know, both pre and post 9-11, the director of the CIA is a monumentally important position. Um, President Trump's first CIA director is now his secretary of state. Uh, we have we have seen, and you have seen, uh, at the front lines, the the importance of the intelligence community and its relationship to the public at large. I'd like to begin our discussion today with what was that experience like for you, and how did it come about? If you don't mind uh, pulling back the curtain a little bit. Uh, of course, Blake. Well, just for some background for our listeners, uh, I served on the Senate Intelligence Committee for 10 years, and they happened to be the 10 years following 9-11, inclu including 9-11, and then following 9-11. And then uh, after I retired from the Senate, served on what's ca called the External Advisory Board, which is a group of, 
uh, people who've had uh, extensive experience in the intelligence world, and you get called on from time to time, usually once a quarter, to kind of assess what's going on in the world and to offer advice and counsel. And then you're there on an as-needed basis whenever the intelligence community, in this case the CIA, might need you. Uh, During those years, I also conducted an internal investigation at the CIA into some alleged wrongdoing, and so spent a lot of time out there getting to know uh, the top-ranking officials. And so that's one of the reasons that uh, I was asked to come in and help uh, prepare uh, Ms. Haspel, who is a 33-year career veteran at the CIA, the the first line officer to actually be promoted to head the agency, in addition to being the first woman. And so she didn't come from politics. She's the, probably the least political person ever to be uh, nominated to head the CIA. So in any event, they, they had me come out a week ago Sunday and spend three, four hours out there basically with a, 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 a mock hearing. And I chaired it and fired you know tough questions at her to prepare for that. She felt that it went so well, she asked if I would then participate in introducing her to my former colleagues in the committee. So it was former Senator Saxby Chambliss a Republican from Georgia who'd been on the committee many years introducing her, and then myself, a Democrat who'd been on the committee, as I said, for 10 years, introducing her to our former former colleagues. And so um, uh, she was very grateful for that, and the vice president was kind enough to call uh, just yesterday to express his, uh, his gratitude, and she's now well on her way to getting confirmed. Uh, you know, in Washington these days, it's kind of rare if anything's bipartisan, but I think at least five or six Maybe even seven Democrats will support her uh, nomination, including significantly the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner from Virginia. So that's a little bit about background. That's a little bit about how it came about. One interesting side note, and then I'm not going to filibuster here, but our listeners might be interested. It just goes to show how it it just goes to show how uh, in many ways the the president is a master of uh, utilizing the media. So this hearing was going to be this focus of attention for 24 hours. It was being billed as being very controversial, very tough, a lot of fireworks. And so as we're prepared to walk into the committee hearing to sit down to introduce her to the committee, and there were, you know, 20 TV cameras there. There were 50 flash photographers taking pictures of everything. And so 15 minutes before we walked into all that, it just coincidentally uh, not really, but uh, Mike Pompeo announced that he would be bringing the three hostages home from North Korea. So immediately the media attention all shifted away from Gina Haspel and her hearing to that development. And so that took a lot of the uh, the fireworks out of it, at least for a while. And then after three or four hours of her answering questions by the committee before going into uh, closed session, uh, the president just spontaneously uh, opened up a cabinet meeting to and indicated he was going to take a tough line on Iran. And so that, again, diverted attention. So my, my point in all this is uh, the president has a very, uh, in many respects, unique style. But when it comes to playing the media, and in this particular case, I have very little doubt that these things were sort of timed, <clears throat> at least in part, to divert attention from the hearing and smooth the way for Ms. As- Aspel, which I think uh, it succeeded in doing. Yeah, no question. We talk a lot, and we have talked a lot about the president's ability to to capitalize on on media moments and and to make the most of them. And and he certainly was trained in that regard, Senator. If you don't mind, I would I'd, I'd be curious about your thoughts about the future direction of of the CIA. Certainly, she will be confirmed with bipartisan support, in no large part to to your efforts, but there. 
she did, it didn't come without criticism. Um, what do you what do you feel like the the future of the CIA um, is? And as we constantly reevaluate our our life in a post nine eleven landscape, um, what do you hope it will be? Well, a couple things about that. First, I think it's uh, appropriate to note that she did have some very strong bipartisan support. Uh, previous directors of the CIA, including Michael Hayden, who was a Republican director under President uh, George W. Bush, strongly supported her, as did the former Attorney General uh, Michael Mukasey, a Republican. Uh, the two immediate predecessor Democratic directors, John right. Brennan and Leon Panetta, also bo- both supported her. So you had intelligence professionals uh, across party lines uh, knew that she had the deep expertise uh, that you really need in a dangerous world to lead the agency going forward. By the way, one other thing that makes it so important that your listeners, that our, that our listeners might be interested in, uh, historically, and it's the case now, it was under Mr. Pompeo and it has been uh, under Ms. Haspel the last several weeks, uh, the CIA director goes to the White House to deliver to the president what's called the President's Daily Brief, uh, the uh, PDB. That basically is a synopsis, a condensation of the overnight most important intelligence matters facing our country at that moment. So every day, Ms. Haspel will be uh, briefing President Trump in person about the major risks facing the country. And every president has their own style. If reports are either uh, President Obama liked to really dive into the details of the written work product before the, the oral presentations, uh, if uh, published reports are be to, to be believed, President Trump doesn't really get into the written product so much, and that makes the oral presentations to him even more important. And that's why it's significant you have someone with a really 33-year deep experience in intelligence, including being a field officer in some pretty uh, difficult environments that Ms. Haspel brings to the table. So she has real credibility uh, and probably has the best chance of, you know, imparting that kind of knowledge and what it means to the president each and every day. So, you know, going forward, there were some uh, controversies that were raised, and I I think appropriately so. And I said in my introduction of her, uh, the interrogation program, the rendition program where we would capture suspected terrorists and send them to uh, third countries for uh, uh, holding and then interrogation, that all needed a thorough airing, and a lot of lessons were learned. And the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, waterboarding, uh, sleep deprivation, those sorts of things uh, were banned several years ago. So that's not been done for many years. That's now against the law, as it should be. And Ms. Haspel said she absolutely supported that. And if the president ever ordered her to reinstitute those sorts of things, she would refuse that order and would either then resign or the president would have the choice of, of firing her. So she she learned firsthand the kind of uh, reputational risks that the agency uh, ran by getting involved in those things. At the same time, it's very difficult to go back and put ourselves in the shoes of people 10 you know, years ago when 3,000 Americans course, had been yeah. killed, killed. They had no idea when the next attack was coming, how many more people would die. And so they had the very unenviable position of thinking that lives might be hanging in the balance and you know how did they go about getting the information they needed to protect innocent american lives while also remaining <clears throat> true to our our values and that's the th- those are the two things that you have to try and accomplish simultaneously 
And a lot was learned about how to co- accomplish those simultaneously, uh, you know, going forward. And she has learned those lessons and has, again, sworn that uh, uh, she would be the last person to ever uh, implement those sorts of um, sorts of things. So that was all aired, and she'll be supported in a bipartisan way going forward. The agency is very important because when you look at the uh, – along with the NSA, which uh, – so the, the CIA – uh, specializes in human intelligence. The NSA collects electronic intelligence. And then we have another agency that the geospatial, they take basically pictures from satellites and you combine all that and you get a, a view of what's going on in the world that might be uh, risky to the United States. So the CIA, when you look at what's going on in Russia today, what's, what, what's in Vladimir Putin's mind? Why is he doing what he's doing? Why, why are the Russians modernizing their nuclear forces? There's only one target for their nuclear forces. That's the United States. Why are they doing this? What does that mean? Uh, what's going on in Iran with us you know, leaving the agreement? What are the Iranians likely to do with their nuclear program? How are they likely to respond in Syria, Yemen, elsewhere around the region? Uh, North Korea, that's going to be a very uh, uh, dicey negotiation. What makes <laughs> Kim Jong-un tick? Will they really agree to live up uh, to, to agree to give up their nuclear capabilities? If they do agree to that, will they abide by the agreement? How can we go about having inspections in a country that's as closed as North Korea is to satisfy ourselves that they are living up uh, to their commitments? And then finally, you know what's going on with ISIS and Al Qaeda and the different branches of those terrorist organizations in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, some parts of uh, Africa. Uh, some parts of Asia, you know, where might the next attack against American interests uh, be coming from? The CIA is uh, intimately involved in all of that. And just one final thing, in case your listeners aren't aware of this, the CIA is prohibited from investigating uh, things internal to the United States. That's the FBI. So this is really all what's going on in the rest of the world and what are the risks to our country and how do we go about managing those risks? And it's a uh, it's a dangerous world. It changes every day. And Miss Haspel and the tens of thousands of people that she will command are on the front line of um, of handling all of that for us. So it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you very much. I want to invite Mark and Howard to to chime in a little bit, because we we don't spend a lot of time on our calls talking about foreign affairs because there's. <laughs> Quite frankly, so much going on in domestic affairs that that occupies our attention. But this is important stuff. This is big stuff. We're seeing big things happen since our last call. We've seen the president, uh, whatever the right verbiage is, no longer participate in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, We have seen him schedule, although we don't know if it will actually happen, a summit with North Korea and Singapore. Um, we have seen the South Korean president uh, travel to North Korea. The North Korean president traveled to South Korea, um, albeit only in footsteps. But be that as it may, symbolism is what it is. Um, and 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 other things happen around the world. Mark, I want to start with you. Um, what what do you make of the state of play? I mean, obviously, Senator. Senator Bai's given us a really good context and inside information to the intelligence world, but let's talk politics. What does all this mean politically? Well, I think it is 
Pre- and, oh, and I didn't talk about Russia. Sorry, my point. But, <laughs> yeah. Howard, yeah. yeah, right, yeah, right. right. Sorry, yeah, right, right. The president is obviously making a political, in addition to, of course, a national security bet, on the scheduled summit Mm -hmm. with North Korea. He is very happy to have Republican governors nominate him for the Nobel Peace Prize. I was going to ask Howard about that, but you you teed it up for me. Very good. Silly. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure they're not the nominating committee. They yeah. haven't really they don't know checked that. the bylaws. Yeah. But as a political matter, um, that summit is a tricky thing because on our side of the aisle, uh, Blake, I'm rooting for him. I'm not a big fan of the president, Senator. You, I think, know that. Certainly anybody who's listened to one of these calls is aware of it. But any American has to be rooting for the president to pull off this summit and to make the world a safer place. So, for example, when yesterday North Korea maybe did, maybe didn't pull back from its its Mm -hmm. commitment, that was disappointing, I think, to a lot of us who were rooting for the president, notwithstanding a... uh, a, a general uh, opinion to the contrary. So it, it, foreign affairs get get very very tricky because it's much harder to be partisan, and and, and we all need to to fight that urge. And you're not actually rooting for the president. I'm rooting for the country. Okay. And the president, I that I buy. Yeah. I reread the Constitution over the weekend. He is in fact in charge of the country. <laughs> he is. Yeah. But so I therefore by some transitive power am, am rooting for a good result in that summit. Yeah. But it's it's much easier to have an us against them domestically. Yeah, and Senator, I want to get your comments in just a second, but Howard, I mean the 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 notion that that our politics are are so cynical. They're yeah. particularly cynical towards this president. Yet, in reality, he's doing big things. I mean, he moved the embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. He has withdrawn from the Iran deal, which he said he would do during the campaign. That's yeah. not that doesn't surprise anybody. <laughs> but he, he hasn't. Well. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm gonna come back to you in just a minute, Mark. But I'm gonna let <laughs> Howard weigh in for for just a second. But it optically, he's done. He's done that. He's pulled out of Paris, which he said he would do during the campaign. Um, and he's been tough enough towards North Korea and willing to do what battle. right? Do what other presidents have not been willing to do, Democrat yeah. and Republican. So I'm not argue, I'm not articulating that I necessarily think that the president is is articulating a cohesive foreign policy vision, but these are not insignificant developments. What what do you make of it from your perspective? Straight out of central Donald Trump casting. I mean, he's going big because that's the way he views the world. And I, look, I I think he's got he's got a lot of trouble, obviously, in his in his own White House. That's the that's the biggest source of his trouble, ironically. Um, and I think it's reflecting on him very poorly from a political point of view. Uh, on the flip side, 
I think on some level it gives him the freedom to say, you know what, uh, I'm going to go big in these other areas and, and see see what happens and, and put it out there. And I'll tell you, I think I don't think he is by any means out of the woods politically. I don't. My view is, was, and remains that um, the the D's are going to. Um, take the House in, in November and that this is all going to come home to roost politically. However, I, I, more and more, I am hearing the tide turn among people on both sides of the aisle that are at least willing to do what you just did, Mark, and give him a little bit of credit for maybe it's strategy, maybe it's crazy on crazy. People say lots of different things, but for moving the needle on some really important things in a way that other people haven't done before, haven't had the courage to do before, haven't had the ability to do before, I don't know. But there's, it's beginning to seep into people's dialogue that, well, you know, I think he's the worst thing in the history of the world, but, but you know what? He's getting a couple of things done, and it's hard to argue with. Senator, I want to bring you into this conversation because uh, I think Howard touched, Howard and Mark both touched on an interesting point, which is, which is the external distractions of big decisions. And in the foreign policy context, this president doesn't. Uh, I, I think the external distractions, and I, I, I sense you might agree with me, both in dem, in previous Democratic and Republican administrations would 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 paralyze an administration from doing the kinds of things that this administration has done. My question to you is twofold. One, what do you make of the recent the recent um, foreign policy developments? And then what do you make of the political circumstance in being able to see those those developments through? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, I think the president almost has a um, an automatic reaction against uh, any of the uh, positions taken by uh, the Obama administration. So he was predisposed to think that if they struck an agreement with Iran, it had to be bad. Uh, if there was the you know, trade agreement that the previous administration had agreed to, it had to be bad. Uh, on the North Korean, I you know I agree with both what what both Mark and Howard mentioned in North Korea, I, I actually give him some credit, regardless of the reason, uh, you know, was he tougher? Uh, he, he did find a way to mobilize China. I think what's behind all this is China really for the first time decided to start cranking up the pressure on North Korea economically, financially, uh, and really exerting some pressure there, which only they can bring to bear. And that basically brought the uh, Kim Jong-un to the table. But that's in the short run. Put me down as skeptical in the long run. We go through these cycles with both him and his father of confrontation and then reconciliation. And so we were, we're in the reconciliation phase now. And he may agree to suspend his program. They did it before. We actually had cameras in their nuclear uh, enrichment facilities. He then, after two or three years, removed them and restarted their program. So if I was a betting man, my guess is that, you know, they'll agree, have an agreement. He'll agree to certain steps, which we'll, we will all like. But the, the real proof of the pudding is going to be, does he um, maintain the agreement over an extended period of time? As I said, put me down as skeptical 
in the long run with regard to that. And the reason for that, and you can see it in the comments that were made that Mark mentioned about him backing away from possibly having the meeting with the president. He said, right. look what happened to Libya. Look what happened to Libya. Look at Iraq. And the reason North Koreans have pursued this program, and in my view, the reason they will never agree to fully give it up, is they view this as their life insurance program, their guarantee of staying in power. So, but, you know, if we can get some peace and stability on the uh, peninsula and understanding that we're going to have to go through the same thing again in three, four, five years, well, you know, at least it's better than having a nuclear confrontation in the short run, which, you know, leads us to Iran. The, the real Achilles heel, and I, I was kind of skeptical about the agreement myself, and the reason for that is the Achilles heel in the agreement was that after 10 years, the Iranians legally were free to go ahead and pursue a nuclear capability. Um, and so I think now we're, what, down to eight years, something like that. But, you know, eight years, nine years, 10 years of peace is better than a nuclear confrontation in the short run. The bet was that the Iranian regime would evolve and become more integrated into the rest of the world over that decade. Again, put right. me down as skeptical that that may happen, but, you know, uh, it's worth giving it a shot, which is what we're doing. So my own view was that withdrawing from the agreement uh, was the easy part. Where do we go now? And we really are counting on the Europeans uh, with the economic investments that they're making in Iran and so forth. And by the way, for our listeners, knowing the Iranian economy is in really pretty tough shape right now. So this is a point of some weakness for them. But, uh, you know, what's to keep them from saying, fine, we're just going to restart our program. And what are you going to do about it? Our, there's no appetite, as far as I can tell, on the part of the American public to actually go to war in Iran. And so that being the case, what do you do if they call our bluff? Um, so it's a short run, long run thing. The politics of all this, Blake, I think the real risk to the president in terms of politics are if you look at the polling today, he, you know, his ratings have inched up a little bit, but he does not poll well on anything except two things. Number one, 52% of the American public gives him a positive rating on handling the economy. And 69% of the American public think the economy is you know, doing pretty well. So the economy is a source of strength for him. Uh, the other one that he gets a 53% uh, positive rating on is handling global terrorism. Well, guess what? Those are two of the top four concerns of the American public. Where I'm going with all this is, I think these things are all you know, interesting and the public will pay attention, but his potential real Achilles heel is if anything were to happen to the economy. And so actually, if we had a trade war with China, if the NAFTA agreement really breaks down, if there's, some, if there's something that were, were to cause the American economy to slow in addition to rising interest rates and growth were to get down to 1%, 1.5%, which some economists think it will in a year and a half from now as he's entering his reelection, I think it's global economics that uh, pose a potentially greater political threat to him than it is uh, these national security confrontations. They're substantive, yeah, just as important, but your question was about the politics. Yeah, no, 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 and I, I, appreci I appreciate that insight because it's a, it's a natural pivot to where I wanted to take the conversation, Mark and Howard, which is we have seen – these very interesting economic developments. We have seen the emergence of Peter Navarro and, and tariffs with China and, and a sort of a shift from the Gary Cohn globalist perspective to the nationalist perspective. Howard, I mean, look, you've been in the Treasury Department. You've 
seen it through Democrats and Republicans. I'm, I'm deeply curious, building upon what the senator mentioned as a, a, a from an economic perspective. We hear about the stock market, which I'll offer, I'll editorialize offline, but we hear about the stock market. The Mooch is really excited about all things, you know, uh, shareholder value. That the tax cut has generated enormous shareholder buyback value. Um, but globally, we're in interesting times. What do you think? I think that the U.S. economy is far and away the most resilient and strongest economy in the world in 2018. And I think that is why people are, that, that's why the economy is doing well. That's why money's flowing into the United States for investment purposes. The tax cuts, uh, more favorable corporate tax regime only helps that. And, you know, at the same time, I think this is a decade of uh, very, very, very low interest rates continuing to work its way through the system. And this isn't, I mean, Trump gets the benefit of being at the helm, which is what happens, um, you know, with 3.9% unemployment, um, that this is what happens. He's the beneficiary of being in the right place at the right time. I think a lot of this has to do with things that were done over the course of the last 10 years in the wake of, of the financial crisis. Yeah, Mark, I'm a, a go back to my to my learnings and and am reminded of the the great there are two great political scientists of my upbringing, Richard Newstadt on presidential power and Stephen Skoranek on cycles and what what cycles mean to presidential success, predominantly what economic cycles mean to presidential success and this notion of right place, right time. And we've debated we've debated amongst the three of us. And Senator Bay, I'm going to bring you into this conversation in a minute because you saw this firsthand, whether the whether you know the the prosperity in the Clinton years were a product of Clinton policy or, or anything else. That's not ours to debate today. The point is, Mark. I do have a view on that. Well, I, I'm not going <laughs> to deny you your 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 own filibuster, which we're which we're very used to. But what I would ask you this is, what what do you make in the sense of where the economy is with Trump, and where is it resonating with the American public in a way that? It traditionally does. I'll admit, it doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel like that. I think what is most interesting about the statistic that Senator By cited is that you would think if 69% of the people thought the economy was doing just fine, that the president would be more popular. Right. And I think what we are seeing talked about this before, Blake, speaking of another mentor of yours, it's the disproving to a degree of Jim Carville's affirmation. It's the economy. You have a president who is at historically low popularity in an economy that 69% of the people think is doing just fine. So I'm not sure as a political matter that it is resonating in the president's popularity uh, in quite the way that his tweets. Well, 
suggest. Of course it isn't, because there are lots of other things going on at the same time. But the economy is still the economy. I mean, it may not be the one, in, it may not be the dominant issue, but of course it's it's resonating, Mark. It's just that there it's in the mix. Sure, but it isn't the only thing stupid that matters. The, it is. Did you just call me stupid? I, Jim Carville. Did. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, Senator, you're getting a feel for the how other, these, how these calls evolve. The, I can I tell. I want to go back to something you said, <laughs> and then we'll, then we'll hear from Evan, please. But the the idea that the nationalists have taken over and that we're going to have a trade war with China and the rest, which is sort of what it looked like when Gary Cohn and folks like him moved out and Navarro and maybe even Bolton and folks like him moved in. I, I, I think that there is less than meets the eye to the Trump uh, trade policy. He announces Intergalactic tariffs. Um, I was going to say. I mean, he, he on, announced then, a particular policy. I mean, it's not. Well, and, and, then, and then the right. retreat begins. That's, oh, the the okay. negotiation country right. by country is right. what you're and talking about. Exactly. The, and, the point is, is sorry, as we've been saying from the from before day one, is just because he takes a position today doesn't mean he's not going to take a different position tomorrow. Look at TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership very early in his administration, which was a um, large multi-nation trade deal for um, the Pacific Rim, and has recently said, I'm going to consider going back in. So, that's the issue is he's unpredictable. Yeah, Senator, I want to I want to I want to get your thoughts because because I'm not arguing. With you. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm I am particularly curious. I've been very curious about the country's economic security and you touched on it, Mark and Howard have elaborated on it, but I want to come back to it. In light of what you've seen from the, from the president, in light of what you're seeing inside the beltway, I mean, what do you sense is, is next on the horizon? I mean, the president has always sort of dabbled around. I, you know, I don't love NAFTA and I, I TPP, yes, then no, then yes, then no, then yes again. Um, what, what do you make of, of, of this dynamic? Because it certainly seems that in a time of economic prosperity for the country that we ought to be thinking about economic, economic prosperity, you know, globally. Um, and so I'd, I'd invite your, your comments if you have them. Well, I think the most important thing for uh, our listeners today to think about and to focus on is uh, the interplay between normalization of interest rates and the rolling back of quantitative easing as the Fed begins to reduce its balance sheet on the one hand. So monetary policy is becoming somewhat more normal and by definition more restrictive than it has been while we are engaged in uh, a huge fiscal stimulus through the tax bill. And so uh, ordinarily this is pretty late in the economic cycle with unemployment being at 3.9% and the uh, expansion having gone on for eight years, or whatever it's been, to to introduce fiscal stimulus. Ordinarily you'd keep that powder dry and save it for a time when there was a temporary 
downtick in the economy to add some stimulus, but we didn't do that. So the deficit is going up, up significantly. That can't go on forever. And in particularly, as interest rates rise, the interest payments on the debt are going to be a bigger and bigger part of the federal budget. Now, where I'm going with all this is I think our listeners should focus on, you know, over the next year, year and a half, productivity growth rates and CapEx, the uh, amount of investment on the part of American companies, part of it because of the stimulus uh, in the or provisions in the tax bill that encourage them to have more CapEx. Uh, does that lead to greater ra- uh, rates of productivity growth? If it does, and that was really the the bet that this tax bill was all about. Uh, it started off to lower and make globally competitive corporate tax rates all good. That needed to be done. It started off to repatriate stranded profits abroad, bring it back home, get it working, helping the American economy, all good. But the tax bill went beyond that and really ran up the deficit. And so the bet was, Will productivity go up in, uh, enough to offset rising inflation caused by a, a variety of factors? If it does, then all good. Real wages will continue to grow, go up. The economy can grow in a healthy regard. If it doesn't, however, and as some economists have suggested, uh, the fiscal stimulus kind of runs its way through, and we're left with just a higher deficit, higher interest payments on a bigger debt, uh, higher inflation, that's not not a healthy situation. And so you could, and this comes back to politics. If I were a betting man, I'd say there's a slightly better than 50-50 chance that as the president enters the heart of his reelection period, we could see decelerating growth, growth, you know, one and a half percent, something like that. Uh, But interest rates continuing to go up because of inflationary pressures. And I ask everybody on this call to think about how is this president going to react if he's running for reelection, the economy is slowing, but the Federal Reserve that he has largely appointed is continuing to raise interest rates. Uh, I can only imagine the tweets that might um, <laughs> be caused by that. So yeah. but that's, what we could be, that's what we could be looking at. Now, conversely, I was at a presentation by Janet Yellen recently. She thinks that rates aren't going to rise as high as people think. And part of that's because of what Howard pointed out, which we have capital you know, flows, which our growth is higher than abroad. And Blake, you mentioned globalization of the economy. So money is pouring to the United States because we're growing faster and we have higher interest rates and our currency is strengthening because of that. So maybe that will keep, uh, you know, a, a lid on rates. But I'd, I'd, I'd keep an eye on inflation. That's really the key. Does productivity growth offset inflation? If it does, then we're in a healthy position. If it doesn't, well, then that's what those of us of a certain age will refer to as stagflation, the combination right. of slower growth but higher inflation, and uh, that's not a place you want to be. And it also does yeah. not tend to be good be good for the re-election prospects of of the incumbent. Well, and and, and I I appreciate that, Senator. And it's a nice pivot to sort of my, our final topic, which is uh, yesterday was the beginning of the day of the mid significant midterms. No disrespect to anyone else, but Mark, we're, we're going to do. We're going to do a, a one-off here shortly on on Pennsylvania, um, but we are we are now fully in, completely in midterm season, um, and we're seeing interesting developments on kind of both sides. Mark, what do you uh, what do you think? Uh, well, Tuesday night was fun and and interesting, and we'll see what the world looks like in six months. But my takeaways from Tuesday night are are a couple. 
And I say Tuesday night meaning more Pennsylvania than elsewhere, sure, although sure. I think what I'm about to say holds elsewhere, too. Uh, number one, in Pennsylvania, where we currently have an 18-member all-male congressional delegation, that's going to change after Tuesday night. On the Democratic side, we nominated literally a handful, five uh, women candidates. Three of them are running, uh, four, excuse me, are running in open seats. One is running against a woman. So a woman's going to Washington from that district for right. sure. And that's a big deal in Pennsylvania. I think it also is the leading edge of what is happening nationally. I think uh, women are extremely energized, engaged, and intense about this. And I think that's what we saw. Another interesting thing we saw, which I think unfortunately is true nationwide as well, is each party went to its uh, left or right, respectively. Each party went away from the center. The progressive candidates in Pennsylvania won on the Democratic side, even when the moderate candidate was a woman. We had up in uh, Fitzpatrick's district yeah. a proud progressive man beat a very impressive but very moderate former Republican, in fact, a woman candidate, and on the Republican side, anybody who stood up, stood up and said, I was Trump before Trump got nominated. Right. So the divide was confirmed, and then some, uh, I, I think, Tuesday night. And we'll just have to see how that all pushes through. Yeah, Howard, I mean, any it's early. And, and John got, Fetterman. Yeah, John <laughs> Fetterman, my, I, which is, I'm trumpeting that to the yeah, to the stars. He's, he was my guy from... From the get-go, and I'm thrilled that he won. A um, bit of editorializing from your moderator. Sorry, Senator. Um, but, Howard, it, it's early. We've seen Pennsylvania and some other states weigh in. My home state of Arkansas will weigh in next week, among other things, which will tell us a lot about the, the state of play. You've got a very pro-Trump candidate with no money running for governor against an incumbent who is also pro-Trump, but but more <clears throat> politically moderate. Um, any themes, anything you can think about? Candidates still matter. Yeah, that's my that's my theme. Yeah. Um, the people that are running, the quality of the candidates um, is the biggest factor in determining, determining the outcome. I think we saw that on Tuesday. I think we've seen it elsewhere. I think we saw it, for example, in West Virginia, where on the Republican side, you had three candidates um, running for the Republican nomination for the Senate seat to take on Joe Manchin in um, in the fall, and you had one that was far out to the right, who Trump actually threw under the bus, even though he said he was Trump before Trump. Uh, you had and you had the Attorney General and then a member of Congress, both of whom were strong candidates. The Attorney General won. And he's a quality candidate, and it's going to be a quality race yeah. in the fall. So I think candidates matter. You're going to have a quality race, Senator. Yeah. Back in Indiana, right? For uh, yeah, we, we are. And I, th I I think I think both Mark and Howard were correct. Mark was correct in pointing out 
that uh, it's the wings of the parties who are still dominating these nominating uh, contests. Uh, and uh, Howard was correct that the quality of the candidate does matter. I mean, m- maybe what we saw in West Virginia is that when you've actually served time in a federal penitentiary for v- safety violations that killed more than 20 minors, maybe that's just a bridge <laughs> too far. Uh, maybe even worse than in Alabama, where they had the, the uh, accused pedophile. But uh, in any event, uh, the, the Republicans dodged a bullet there. But the point I wanted to make, you know, in Indiana, we had a small business guy who could sell fun, beat two uh, incumbent congressmen. And the uh, the important thing there was that he really could run. They all, they all claimed to be the heir of Trump, but he could more authentically claim to be the outsider, uh, you know, the small guy running against the establishment. So I think we're seeing a continuation of a theme that we've seen. The women issue that Mark mentioned plays a part of this. I think women sort of are viewed as a little bit more outside you know, the government's tended to be viewed as sort of an old boys club. And, you know, women are a little different. They bring a different perspective. And so the theme that we're still seeing is one of anti-establishment, anti-elite, shake the place up. We want something new, something different. And so these candidates that can, uh, assuming you don't have something disqualifying, like the Blankenship guy in uh, West Virginia, uh, the person who can most plausibly present themselves as the true outsider, the true change agent against the status quo, I think that's the person most likely to get nominated on either side. Yeah, it's it's, it's really interesting. Um, I, I can't begin to express my fascination with not only what the, what the general election matchups will be in Pennsylvania, and we're going to push some content out about that, uh, you know, or we will have push some content out about that. Sorry. Um, but be that as it may, I think it's, um, I think it's exciting. I think that, I think there's, there's a lot to dissect and, and to continue to discuss. We have reached the end of our time, uh, today. Uh, Mark Howard, always a privilege and pleasure to be with you. Uh, Senator, I can't thank you enough for joining us on this call. I hope it is uh, it is not the last, but certainly want to want to reiterate um, my gratitude to you for joining us, and of course for joining Tozen O'Connor. It's a it's a privilege and a pleasure to have you uh, as a colleague, and 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 I hope uh, you'll be back with us uh, as we dive deeper into these midterms. Um, but be that as it may, gentlemen, thank you all, and uh, to everyone listening, we will talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. Ladies and gentlemen, that does conclude the conference call for today. We thank you all for your participation, and we ask that you disconnect your lines. Thank you, and have a great day.